welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience at Akut in Berlin, and on the podcast, we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. First off, I want to say thank you to all our listeners around the world in Mexico, Ireland, in Bulgaria, Thailand, France, and Japan, and everywhere else. It's such a delight to have you all with us. Uh, it's Women's History Month, and... Well, every month is Women's History Month, in my opinion, so we're just going to carry on as usual. There's another fantastic story coming up in this episode, but first, Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Darbyshire is here to help me introduce it and our presenter. Hello, Katie. Hi, Susan. <laughs> Katie, our next live show is coming up April 24th. Can you give us a quick preview, please? Yeah, we've got uh, three dead ladies, as usual. We've got Berlin's own animation pioneer Lotte Reiniger. Uh, we've got the crime writer and Dante translator Dorothy L. Sayers. And someone you've probably heard of, the artist and legend Frida Kahlo. This should be great, and if you are in Berlin on April 24th, please do come along and see us. Now on to this episode's lady, or ladies, I should say. Yeah, we have two ladies this time in one, two for the price of one, uh, Sarah and Angelina Grimke, who were American abolitionists. And um, we've got our friend Francis Thomas Provine talking about them. Francis is a translator here in Berlin. She's a fan of 20th century literature and David Bowie and where better place to be a fan of David Bowie and she comes from a fascinating family you'll hear a little bit about them full of women including eight aunts that's a lot of aunts or aunts <laughs> as I would say <laughs> okay let's hear Francis on the Grimke sisters the Grimke sisters were a couple of abolitionists from the 19th century and I was a little bit hesitant to uh, present them today because I think everyone has kind of had enough of politics. Also, usually at the Dead Ladies show, the ladies are pretty like glitzy and glamorous and um, the Grimke sisters <laughs> were actually very religious Quakers, which is the exact opposite of dazzling. Um, first of all, another caveat. I think when we talk about the civil rights movement, it's I feel a little bit hesitant talking about white civil rights activists because, uh, first of all, the voices of uh, black activists have kind of been silenced enough in history and uh, it would be good to give them uh, more of a voice. Also, if you look at writings and the opinions of white activists in history, a lot of times you'll find a lot of uh, paternalism and sort of condescension in the way they talk about these issues which uh, with the Grimke sisters is not exactly the case, so um, I feel okay talking about it. But yeah, so why the Grimke sisters? Yeah, they're sisters. Uh, for me, I come from a family with, um, I have eight aunts and I have a twin sister, so this is a, an issue that's very close to my heart. <laughs> I think they're at the heart of what the Dead Ladies show is all about because they were uh, really important in their time and had a lot of accomplishments but have just kind of been forgotten in history books which happens to a lot of dead ladies, unfortunately, which is why we have this show. There were actually two of 14 Grimke children. Their family came from a very wealthy plantation, slaveholding family in South Carolina. So Sarah is the older of the two Grimke sisters. She was born in 1792. 
Uh, as a child, she uh, always had a very sharp intellect and loved to read. She actually wanted to study to become a lawyer, but her family thought it was unbecoming, and so she didn't do that. But she did borrow her, uh, her brother's law books, who was studying to become a lawyer, and also took out a bunch of other books from the library and tried to learn as much as possible. She also, at a young age, took a critical view of slavery, which sort of stemmed from her teaching Bible lessons to slaves. But at that time in South Carolina, it was illegal for slaves to learn how to read or write, which made the lessons very difficult. And she actually started secretly teaching one of the slaves on her plantation how to read and write. But her family caught her and uh, almost had the slave whipped. Not her, the slave. And so she didn't uh, continue, but um, she did write about that later. Um, and here's a great quote about that. Quote, I took an almost malicious satisfaction in teaching my little waiting maid at night when she was supposed to be occupied in combing and brushing my long locks. The light was out, the keyhole screened, and flat on our stomachs, there before the fire with a spelling book under our eyes, we defied the laws of South Carolina. <laughs> Angelina was the younger sister, and Sarah was actually, when Angelina was born, Sarah asked to be her godmother, um, and so she kind of uh, instilled some of her ideas in Angelina. Unlike Sarah, who was a little bit more reserved, um, Angelina was always very outspoken, to the point where she even uh, rejected the Episcopalian church from her family when she was 13 years old. <laughs> and she also held religious services for slaves at a local Presbyterian church and got to know a local minister called, um, his name was McDowell. Even though he was also anti-slavery, she was frustrated with his approach, which is sort of, let's pray that slavery will end and then <laughs> Hopefully, uh, with the time, it'll end. And she wanted a more active approach. When Sarah was in her late 20s, her father got sick and had to go to Philadelphia for care. And she was forced to sort of accompany him. She didn't really want to, but she, but she was forced to. And so she spent a few months in Philadelphia while he was sick. And at that time, Philadelphia was a, a free a place without slavery. And she also encountered some Quakers while she was there. And actually, on the boat ride back to Charleston, she met a Quaker named Israel Morris who gave her some abolitionist literature, which she then later read and uh, drew ideas from. When she arrived back in Charleston, she was completely horrified, especially with slavery, and basically wanted to move away again as soon as possible. And she ended up moving back to Philadelphia by herself to become a Quaker and join the Quaker community there, which was completely unheard of at this time when unmarried women were not allowed to do anything on their own. She would come back and visit Charleston occasionally, and Angelina became increasingly frustrated with the slavery and with the sort of church scene <laughs> in, in Charleston and ended up moving to Philadelphia as well to also become a Quaker. So in Philadelphia, uh, they joined what was called the Society of Friends, which was a abolitionist society in Philadelphia within the Quaker community. Uh, at that time, Quakers were really a huge part of the um, abolitionist movement. But they were also really frustrated with the Quaker approach because they tended to also believe in sort of a gradual end of slavery. And they believed in the colonization approach which was basically sending freed slaves back to Africa because they still didn't actually believe that 
white and black people were equal and they couldn't understand how an integrated society would work. And so as a result, they sort of became increasingly frustrated and increasingly isolated in the Philadelphia Quaker Society. At this time, they also met Catherine Beecher, who is uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's older sister. And at the time, she was a proponent of female education, which the sisters were obviously really into. But for them, she also didn't really go far enough. Uh, she still felt like men and women should be in separate spheres, and she thought that women should only be educated as a means of becoming better mothers. And she also believed in the gradual dismantling of slavery rather than immediate emancipation, uh, which the sisters also didn't really respect. So actually, later on, the sisters had a very public rivalry with Catherine Beecher and published a book of letters basically making a bunch of arguments against her. At the end of this period, Angelina was 30 years old and Sarah was 43 years old and they were still unmarried women. So for them, uh, at that time in society, their lives should have been over because at that point, if you were an unmarried woman, you should be living with your mother and not doing anything else. But that isn't what happened. At this point, a new abolitionist movement was starting called the American Anti-Slavery Society uh, that believed in immediate emancipation, rejected the ideas of colonization, and they also were generally against racial prejudice. And a sort of key figure here was a man named Theodore Weld, who comes up later. Um, he became sort of a, an icon to the two sisters. And Angelita started sort of secretly attending these anti-slavery meetings. She also became a part of the Female Anti-Slavery Society. This is a separate group because at that time, men and women were not allowed to meet together in that way. Uh, of course, the sisters were still really frustrated. They thought that when they moved to the North that it would be a place where people were very uh, pro-emancipation, given that it was a free state a place where most slaves were freed, but there was still a lot of opposition to abolitionism there. And there was actually a man named George Thompson who was another abolitionist who got mobbed after he gave a speech. And in a fit of emotion, uh, Angelina wrote a letter to the Liberator, which was an abolitionist paper at the time. And the head of the Liberator, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, just published the letter without telling her pretty much. And then she ended up hearing from her Quaker friends that her letter had been published in this newspaper. And they were all really uh, scandalized that uh, she had written this letter. But this was sort of the point when they really started taking a public role. So at this point, the secretary of the Anti-Slavery Society in New York sort of took notice. And he asked Angelina Grimke if she could come and give speeches in small little women's circles in New York against slavery. And this was something that, again, really scandalized the local community in Philadelphia. And the local Quakers actually said that if she was going to go and do this, she would need a certificate of approval and, and a companion to sort of accompany her, uh, to which Angelina's response was, quote, it is sinful in any human being to resign his or her conscience and free agency to any society or individual. So this is sort of the beginning and the end of um, this relationship with the Philadelphia Quakers. And then, even though Sarah was a little bit more hesitant about the whole situation, uh, she ended up accompanying Angelina to New York to speak in these women's circles. About the same time, Angelina wrote and published another essay called The Appeal to the Christian Women of the Southern States, where she refuted biblical arguments that were made in favor of uh, slavery, because at the time, a lot of people said, well, there are slaves in the Bible, so 
it's fine to have slaves. So she argued against that. And when this uh, appeal reached Charleston, where they were from, the postmaster burned it. And the Charleston police told the Grimke's mother that if the two sisters ever showed up in Charleston, they would be arrested and held until they could be sent back to the north. And so neither sister actually ever went back to Charleston after that. And while they were in New York, they trained to be anti-slavery agents to sort of go and um, give these little speeches and to sort of try and win people over to the abolitionist cause. But when they did that, there were so many people who wanted to attend their speeches that they ended up renting out churches to give the lectures in because little parlors with 20 or 30 women wouldn't fit all the people who wanted to come. And then something uh, even more radical happened and men started sneaking into the audience uh, because um, they were so interested in what the Grimkeys wanted to say, which at that point in time, it was maybe the first time in US history where there were mixed audiences, especially listened to a female speaker. And then they made the speeches officially mixed. And the first mixed Angelina Grimke speech was in a black church. Uh, so it was mixed both racially and in terms of gender. Angelina, who was sort of the more gregarious of the two, um, was also criticized for the non-ladylike way in which she spoke and gave speeches, because she gestured a lot when she spoke, which at that time was totally not allowed. And her response was, quote, I am so absorbed in my subject, I forget myself. To stand motionless when the feeling is deeply excited is perfectly unnatural, and I cannot admire or approve of it. They also criticized racial prejudice in their talks, saying, quote, Northern prejudice against color is grinding the colored man to the dust in our free states, and this is strengthening the hands of the oppressor continually. Uh, around this time, they were also giving lessons at colored schools and uh, visiting their students' homes and talking to their families. And they were very critical of the top-down approach of other abolitionists and even said, quote, to visit them as our inferiors, the recipients of our bounty, is quite a different thing from going among them as our equals. And sort of around the same time, there were a couple of men who actually stood up in one of their speeches and said, actually, you know, we were in the South and uh, slavery is not that bad. What you're saying doesn't make any sense. And Angelina challenged them to a debate, which they accepted. It was the first public debate between a woman and a man. And she basically killed them in the debate. <laughs> but the local papers were a bit hesitant to cover it, which we'll get to in a bit. Angelina also spoke before the Massachusetts State Legislature, which is the first time in US history that a woman spoke in front of a legislative body. Um, in total, they reached about 40,000 people at their uh, speeches, which is very impressive, especially for that time. So some contemporary critiques of the Grimkeys. Part of the reason that debate was not published was because Angelina, in her debate, she talked about how white male slave owners in the South took advantage of black slave women and had children with them, which was something that everybody kind of knew, but no one talked about. A quote from the local paper at the time was, the character of the white ladies of the South, as well as the ladies of color, seems to have been discussed, and the editor of the Courier was of the opinion that the reputation of his paper and the morals of its readers might be injuriously affected by the publishing of this debate. 
They were also criticized for being unmarried women. So here's a quote about that. Quote, why are all the old hens abolitionists? Because not being able to obtain husbands, they think they may stand some chance for a Negro if they can only make amalgamation fashionable. <laughs> Angelina was also referred to as Devilina <laughs> by some local papers. Around this time, the two sisters also published what might be their most important works. Catherine Beecher wrote an essay basically advocating the gradual end of slavery. This essay was directed at Angelina Grimke. I think she even wrote a letter at the beginning saying, you know, we used to know each other, she used to be a right, but her ideas have taken a bit of a radical turn. And as a result, uh, Angelina Grimke wrote a list of letters as a response to her, basically saying why immediate emancipation was the only course of action. And so here's a quote from one of those letters. Thou sayest, the best way to make a person like a thing which is disagreeable is to try in some way to make it agreeable. So then, instead of convincing a person by making a sound argument and pointed rebuke that sin is sin, we are to disguise the opposite virtue in such a way as to make him like that, in preference to the sin he had so dearly loved. We are to cheat a sinner out of his sin, rather than to compel him under the stings of conviction to give it up from deep-rooted principle. And then, around the same time, a local preacher wrote a letter called the Pastoral Letter that basically told local churches not to invite the Grimke sisters into their churches to give speeches because it also mentioned a lot of things about women's rights in their speeches and related it to the situation of the slave. This preacher uh, said that they didn't understand the separation of the two spheres of men and women. And as a result, Sarah Grimke wrote a series of letters called uh, Letters on the Equality of the Sexes. And see, here's a quote from those letters. During the early part of my life, my lot was cast among the butterflies of the fashionable world. And of this class of women, I'm constrained to say, both from experience and observation, that their education is miserably deficient, that they are taught to regard marriage as the one thing needful, the only avenue to distinction, hence to attract the notice and win the attention of men by their external charms is the chief business of fashionable girls. They seldom think that men will be allured by intellectual acquirements because they find that when any mental superiority exists, a woman is generally shunned and regarded as stepping out of the appropriate sphere, which in their view is to dress, to dance, to set out the best possible advantage of a person, to read the novels which inundate the press, and which do more to destroy her character as a rational creature than anything else. But actually, there are some men who are interested in intellectual women, apparently. <laughs> uh, so around this time, Theodore Weld, who was um, an abolitionist I mentioned earlier, who was someone that the Grimke sisters really looked up to. So at this time, there was a lot of tension among the abolitionists. Some thought that the Grimke sisters were stepping out of line by talking about women's rights, and they said it was a distraction. And uh, Weld was no different. I mean, he, he believed also in women's rights, but um, he thought they were being a little bit too radical and distracting from the main issue. And he wrote a letter to Angelina Grimke saying as much. And she wrote back quite offended and basically saying you're out of line for saying that. And then he wrote again, and his second letter was actually a letter declaring his love for her. 
and saying that the reason he had been so harsh on her was because he was trying to hide his feelings. And the two actually ended up getting married. So the one of the sisters was not unmarried forever. And then when they got married, Sarah actually moved in with them. Um, <laughs> because at that time, uh, unmarried women moved in with their sisters if they got married. So the sisters sort of stopped giving speeches around this time because their health was under strain. But there are a few more things I'd, I'd like to mention about them anyway. After the Civil War, in 1968, Angelina Grimke, sorry, oops. I wrote, typed that wrong. Yeah, 1868, after the Civil War, Angelina read an article about a talented student at Lincoln University, uh, which was the black university at the time, and the name of the student was Archibald Grimke. And she was a bit surprised by the last name, and so she did some research and found out that her brother Henry, so the sisters hadn't had any contact with Charleston for uh, about 30 years, uh, she found out that her brother Henry had actually had a common law relationship with a former slave after his wife had died, and they had two sons. He treated the sons as his sons, though after he died, they were actually captured and taken back into slavery. But after the Civil War, they were free again, and they went on to go to Lincoln University. Um, so she tracked down these sons, took them in, and paid for their education. So one was Archibald, one was named Francis. And they went on to law school. Um, Archibald went to Harvard Law, and his brother went to Howard, Francis. And he also became the vice president of the NAACP. And then Archibald Grimke had a daughter who was named after Angelina Grimke. So her name was also Angelina Grimke. And she became a lead poet and playwright in the Harlem Renaissance around the turn of the century. She was also one of the first writers who was sort of publicly lesbian, probably lesbian. I mean, her poetry was explicit. So, yeah, so I guess um, that's sort of the story of the Grip Keys. <laughs> so that was Frances Tom's Provine on the Grimke sisters. And as it happens, Frances's mother, Nancy Lunsford, who used to be a folk songwriter, wrote a song about Angelina Grimke called Crazy Angelina. Now, unfortunately, due to music rights in Germany, we've had to cut this out of Frances' presentation, but Nancy kindly gave us permission to use the song. So you can find it at our website, deadladiesshow.com, in the show notes for this podcast. So do go there and check it out. Thank you, Katie. Um, now we have a new segment for you, Woman of the Hour, where we take a look at a dead lady who's been getting some fresh attention. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is in the news a lot right now because a school with her name in Parkland, Florida was the site of a shocking and tragic event and is the source of some very brave students. Now, if you're not from the American state of Florida, you might not know who Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is. Well, she is a pretty fabulous dead lady. Born in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1890, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was a journalist, an activist, and an early fighter for the causes of women's rights, racial justice, and conservation. In 1950, at the age of 25, on the run from a brief and disastrous marriage, she joined her father's newspaper, the Miami Herald. Always an excellent writer, she was now expected to focus on so-called ladies' topics, like garden parties and gossip, perhaps the latest hat fashions. 
Instead, Stoneman Douglas covered the women's suffrage movement, took on the Ku Klux Klan, and argued for a public welfare office to protect children. She campaigned for women's rights in 1917 and volunteered for the American Red Cross, serving in Europe during the First World War. Upon her return, she wrote short stories and essays, winning writing awards and becoming a professor. At the time, Florida was still far from becoming the vacation paradise it's now known as. It was untamed and in transition, and Marjorie loved it. Her book, The Everglades, River of Grass, published in 1947, brought attention to South Florida's massive ecosystem of wetlands. At the time, it was viewed as a worthless swamp that should be drained and built upon. A lifetime of environmental advocacy peaked again in the 1970s. At 79, in her floppy straw hat and glasses, she successfully fought a new plan to build an airport on the natural treasure. I'll tell you, the whole thing is an enormous battle between man's intelligence and his stupidity. And I'm not at all sure that stupidity isn't going to win out in the long run. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas speaking to NPR in 1981. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1993, was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, and lived to be 108. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas would be proud of the students at her namesake school who have risen out of shock and grief to form a movement against violence and political indifference that has resonated around the world. They're following her advice, as should you, she said. Be a nuisance where it counts, but don't be a bore at any time. Do your part to inform and stimulate the public to join your action. Be depressed, discouraged, and disappointed at failure and the disheartening effects of ignorance, greed, corruption, and bad politics. But never give up. That's it for the show. We'll be back with another episode next month. Until then, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dead Lady Show. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Radio Public, and PRX, where public radio stations around the world can get our show for broadcast. If you'd like to get in touch, drop us a line to info at deadladyshow.com. Thanks to Katie and all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone. <laughs>